are listening to and watching Legends of Tabletop. Hello and welcome, everybody, and welcome to Giza. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, we we uh, met at Necronomicon this past year. We happened to bump into each other a number of times, so I figured, like, shit, well, I should probably have you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. Thank you very much for the invite. Oh, thanks for coming on. How was your Necronomicon this year? God, it was a whirlwind. Um, I'm, I'm not exactly a convention guy. I've been mm -hmm. to conventions. I've worked on uh, two conventions when I was still a teenager um, back in Canada, but I don't have the time or money to go to very many, and I don't know how other people have either of those things to go to cons all the time. Right. Um, so this was only my second Necronomicon, in fact. Oh, really? Yeah, 2017 was the first one when my wife, Andrea, and I both uh, traveled up to Providence for it, nice. uh, and it was wonderful. It was nice to be on somewhat known ground since I'd been there for 2017. So I knew a little bit about what was going on and I knew uh, more people by, by face rather than just by reputation. Uh, and it was a blast. I had a great time. I always do uh, at Necronomicon as well. The two that I've been to. Yeah. I, I, I missed the first one. I've been to the last three. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's my go-to when it comes up, like that's my vacation for that year. Like, all right, sure. this is, I'm going to spend a lot of money and like, this is where I'm going to go. But, like you, you have to like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, particularly in, in, you know, it's, it's kind of my big academic interest is uh, Lovecraftian fiction and weird fiction. So it's, it's kind of necessary for me to try and keep my finger on the raging pulse of this subgenre. So, right. All right. Now, did you, I, so we ran into each other at a couple of panels and I know you moderated mm -hmm. at least two, right? I, I sat on two. I didn't moderate any. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I was on the uh, Welcome to Weird Fiction, A Beginner's Guide to uh, uh, Lovecraftian Fiction, I think was the specific name, but I could be wrong. Uh, and the other one was the uh, uh, Lovecraftian Tropes Without Pastiche, I think was the second one. The, um, the chair for that was, or the moderator for that was Douglas E. Winter, uh, mm -hmm. who had me rather starstruck. I got to go up <laughs> to him after or before the panel, actually, and say, thanks for writing the greatest zombie story ever. So. <laughs> You mashed right. up uh, uh, Brett Easton Ellis and, and George Romero zombie fiction. That's absolute genius. I love it. <laughs> Very cool. Why the, um, the the weird the intro to the weird one? I, we posted. I didn't catch the other one. Mm -hmm. That's okay. It was an interesting panel. Yeah. Um, it, it was it was it was quite fun. It was more tightly moderated, um, and mm -hmm. you know, no flack to. to uh, Douglas E. Winter here, but I think the more free form one that you were at, I think, ran a little bit better. So. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I guess it depends, right? So I recorded and and saw the um, the uh, the Stephen King one. Oh, nice! I didn't get to go to that one. It it was a really feisty panel. Oh, was it really? <laughs> you Wait. like you wouldn't think, right? Like no. some people, like I, you know, I go to a number of cons. Most of them are local here. Sure. Um, and people are like, ah, pff, you know, panels. Like, uh, you know, I want to play games or you know, I want to do this. But I, you know, it's a little bit of work for me, right? Like I go and, you know, I record a bunch of stuff. So we release because not everybody can get to everything. Like that's just, 
yeah. Necronomicon, right? Because everything yeah. runs counter. Like gaming runs counter to this, to the shows, and um, but I I enjoy them. I it, you know some of them are better than others, whatever. But um, yeah, I, I it's usually really interesting to go and see and. You know, like you say, you know, being starstruck, you know, you get such a wide variety of people on all the different panels. Like, I, I, I enjoy it quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you're right about just not being able to cram in everything you want to do, right? Like, I have I have two friends from Canada, two very good friends of mine that come down to Necronomicon every year, and they game the entire time, yeah. um, you know, because they're, they're as old as I am, so they're old as the hills. And... uh <laughs> They, they just don't have the time in their day-to-day -day lives to game. So they try and pack in all of their Call of Cthulhu gaming into those four days. Wow. And I'm always amazed because I the last thing I want to do when I go to Necronomicon is game. I'm a gamer. I enjoy playing games. But when I'm there, I want to go to the Armitage Symposiums. I want to go to the panels. I want to wander the dealer's room and talk to people, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I, different strokes for different folks, right? I don't get to do everything I want to do. They don't get to do everything mm -hmm. they want to do. Yeah, well, you have to make some hard choices once you get there. Yeah, sadly, sadly. <laughs> I don't, I, I haven't gamed, like, I haven't signed up for any gaming on any of the years that I've been there. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, like, we pay, you know, we play a lot. You know, I have sure. podcasts, we play all the time. Um, but, you know, for me, it's just going and hanging out with everybody. I mean, mm -hmm. we drank too much, we ate too <laughs> much, uh, you know, and like, you're just running into people like all over the place. So, like, I can't pass that up and like sign up for, you know, a four or six hour session. Absolutely. And I can't imagine doing it all weekend. Like it's cool to be able to game all weekend, especially if you can't do it, but yeah, yeah. man, it's such a huge investment when you're only there for four days, you know, it's tough. And I mean, for me, that's an environment where there are people wandering around whose work I've admired for decades, you know, uh, and who I consider myself quite frankly, very lucky to have the opportunity to meet. Um, so I'm, you know, no chance in hell that I'm going to squander that opportunity. <laughs> as much as I love gaming, I can game whenever I want to here in Florida, you know, not when I'm in Lovecraft's hometown. So. Yeah. And it was really nice this year, too. The first the first uh, Wednesday was muggy, and I guess maybe Thursday, but then Friday, Saturday were absolutely gorgeous, especially we for the East Coast. We were shocked because, I mean, we live in Florida, right? Yeah. So we flew up in 2017 and we were like, ah, oh, we're going to need long pants and sweatshirts. You know? <laughs> and then we realized, oh, wait, Providence is in the north. It's super hot on the coast in August and they don't believe in modern air conditioning anywhere in this city. Yeah. So it, we suffered all through 2017. <laughs> it was just nightmarish. I was constantly soaked to the skin all the way through. It was such a shock. But the weather, thankfully, this year was really, really nice. I, I quite enjoyed it. So yeah. yeah, what what was your what was your standout moment for the con this year? Yeah, um, I was sitting on panels, no question, yeah. no question. I w I wanted to get a paper in for the Armitage Symposium as well, um, but unfortunately, I wasn't able to get the 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 um, prospectus done on time mm -hmm. um, due to work limitations and so on. So. But sitting on panels, I think, was just the standout. 2017, I think the standout for me was um, uh, Scott Connors, who uh, some, some of your, your listeners and watchers might know quite well. Uh, he took me on a walking tour of College Hill, uh, oh, cool. which I considered that a rare, rare treat. Uh, and then a good friend of mine from when I was growing up uh, and my wife and I made a pilgrimage out to Swan Point Cemetery to see Lovecraft's grave. So those were two the two big standouts for me for 2017. But just being a part of the programming in 2019, it was amazing. I couldn't 
I couldn't even believe it, quite frankly. Yeah. We we did two panels last year and it was mm-hmm. very stressful. <laughs> <laughs> it's shocking. I was sitting there in the morning panel with my uh, my tea and my Starbucks cup or whatever the company name is there now. And I was just shaking like a leaf. You know, I'm this giant six foot five guy, Dr. <laughs> Riley. I'm hoping nobody notices the delirium <laughs> tremens in my hands. It was really tough. It's different whenever, like, you know, people watch the show and, you know, we role play and all that kind of stuff. You think, ah, it'd be no big deal. But, you know, to be sitting up there, and I think I moderated at least one of them. Like, oh, I I hate every minute of this. (laughs) That would be really tough. That would be really, really tough. I mean, that's a lot of research I'd feel beholden to do right there because I'd want to know everything about everybody else sitting on the panel. I, I knew First most one. everybody. I stocked stocked my <laughs> <laughs> That's not bad. That's not bad. I must say it wasn't as bad for me as I sat. Uh, I went to Worldcon in 2004, I think, when they were in Montreal. And I presented a paper to their academic symposium adjunct. Uh, and for some reason, they, they were kind enough to put me on some panels as well, but there were some really weird ones that to this day, I'm not sure why they put me on them. Like they did one <laughs> on, uh, uh, alien, uh, the, the Ridley Scott film, and they had me on that panel. And I love that movie. I know a lot about that film and that series in general, but like I was sitting next to, uh, one of the main writers of that huge line of alien novels. Right, oh, wow. I was like, "Why? Why am I here?" <laughs> Talk to him; he knows his stuff, you know. <laughs> so that was that was really much more stressful than Necronomicon was. At least at Necronomicon, I know a bit more right. about what talking about. Well, so, I think sometimes they, you know, maybe they don't get people that they expect to have on panels, and then right. they kind of like shuffle people around, and they're like, "Hey, you're going to be here, right?" Like. Yeah. You're a doctor. We'll throw you on a panel. <laughs> I wasn't a doctor back then. I was still a doctor in training. But uh, yeah, they. I think they just ran with whatever word salad I threw into the abstracts that I, <laughs> I sent them. So yeah, it worked. It was fun. Very cool. Uh, did you uh, did you stay around um, Sunday night for the um, uh, for the movie thing? I can't think of the name. Now. Oh, the Dunwich Horror. The, the Dunwich Horror. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't miss that. I went to it by myself in 2017 because it's a bit of, a, a bit of a hike from the hotel we were staying at. Yeah. Um, but this year we went with a, a good friend uh, from my childhood and his wife, and my wife came along. And it was just a hoot. I love, I absolutely love going to the Dunwich Horror Show. Uh, what is it, the uh, Dunwich Horror Picture Show? I think they call it specifically. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's always a blast. It really is. I, I, I unironically love that film. I think it's just <laughs> great. You know, I mean, the story itself is ridiculous. As, as good of a story as I think it is, and I disagree with a lot of critics on that score. I think it's it's quite a good story. Not Lovecraft's best by any stretch, but still a good story. Um, but the film is almost the perfect complement <laughs> for that story. You know, I don't think you could ask for a better adaptation of that particular narrative um, without making it kind of artificial and forced in a weird way. Yeah. It was. This was the first year I went and did it, and oh, really? it was interesting to say the least. What did you think? I, I wasn't a huge fan. Like oh. I'm glad I went and I did it. You know, it was cool. You know, like, uh, you know, Big Naza was up in the in the balconies and stuff, and you know, lights kind of come up and they're you know flailing and stuff. But oh, yeah. you, you know, for me, it was the people. Like we, you know, we walked out with with most of the Chaosium crew. Mike was there, mm-hmm. and. Um, I can't remember. We won't, you know, Pete was with us and Sal and 
Nice. Um, I didn't even notice them there. Wow. Yeah, we 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 were kind of tagging along with Mike and that whole crew. Uh, Paul Fricker was was there, so we just you know like it's cool for me just to hang out. You know, yeah, like that was I was like, yeah, I'll go. We'll check it out. It's whatever. Sure, but sure, sure. I I don't know that I would do it next year. <laughs> oh, it's it's a tradition for me now. Every time there's a Necronomicon and they have a, a a Dunwich Horror Picture Show, I will be there, guaranteed. So. Yeah, I know Murph from the MU podcast said the same thing. He was like, this is my, you know, not a lot of people stay all the way through to Sunday because there's so few flights on Sunday. Like if you yeah. leave on Sunday, it's, you know, five in the morning or whatever. Yeah. So you, you don't have a lot of options. And I'm like, nah, my, you know, I, I stayed this year and last year because you're you're giving up a whole day, you know. Yeah. I'm going to go home and go to work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we like to fly out Monday around mid-afternoon, like, you know, try and be the last ones out sort of thing for whatever strange reason that just seems to work for us. Yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah it, was, it was, it was definitely a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to the next one. Next, next, um, in 20, what is that going to be? 2021. It's going to be the, uh, uh, the water festival thing. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Right, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The water fire. I, I missed it completely in 2017. Um, my wife happened to see it. Uh, but she never, she's still never described it to me. So I don't actually know what I missed. I know it's a, some big to do in Providence. And it, from the vague description I've heard from her, it sounds interesting, but I, I literally don't know what I'm missing on that score. I'm, I'm, when I heard at the closing panel that it was going to be happening in 2021, I got unreasonably excited. I was like, oh, finally, <laughs> <laughs> I can learn what everybody else already knows. Yeah, yeah. It should be cool. Yeah. Um, I, I I haven't seen it before. I thought they did it in 13 the last time. Was it? I would swear I, it was on in, in 17. I don't know. If they did, I missed it completely. <laughs> so did I. So welcome on the club. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so what I think that I, I think that function brings a lot of other people into town too. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to be, it'll be pretty packed uh, in 2021, I think, because you'll have people coming in just around for that. Oh, sure. Well, that's fine. The more the merrier. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully it'll convince a couple of people to come check out the convention too. Well, and everybody kind of seems nonplussed by the fact that we sort of invade Providence, right? Like everybody seems pretty cool. Like you go out to eat or whatever, like nobody's like, oh, pff, you know. These weird. So that, that's nice. Yeah. I, I strongly suspect that most people living in, in, in Providence or the surrounding environs at least have a passing understanding of what their city represents to this giant group of weirdos. Uh, so yeah. when Necronomicon rolls around, it's just kind of more of the same, <laughs> just exacerbated <laughs> for a couple of days. So, exactly. Yeah. Now, are you a sports guy at all or no? I should be. Being Canadian, I should be more of a hockey fan than I actually am. Uh, but unfortunately, that gene kind of skipped me a little bit. I, I have tried... My, my very best, my wife works for a, a major sports team, and I've tried my best to get into the sport, and I, I have to some extent, um, but I'm not that big into sports, I have to admit. I, I used to follow basketball, uh, NBA, when I was younger, um, but that was, that was many years ago. So, yeah. Why do you ask? Uh, so they had the, um, the, the Bruins, uh, like a fan fest or something. Oh, really? Uh, the weekend that we were there. So, oh, that's right. I remember that now in 2019. Yeah, just uh, in, in August. That yeah, was kind of weird to see people in, in Bruins sweaters wandering around representing. 
Yeah, they were all lined up over, like, I guess over by the subway there across from the, the Biltmore or whatever they call it, the graduate now. Um, so I, I'm a Flyers fan. So okay. I was leaving the the panel, whatever we were recording, and I took the steps because those elevators are horrible. Yeah, so yeah. as I get out into the into like the staircase, I see all the Bruins fans. I'm like, what the? F-? So I run all the way down the steps. I run outside. And I'm like, let's go Flyers! <laughs> people are looking like, what the fuck is this? A couple people started laughing. I wish I'd have had my jersey. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that been great? I, uh, I I live in the town of the Tampa Bay Lightning, of course, and there's no love lost between the Lightning and the Bruins. So it was it was quite jarring to suddenly see a sea of Bruins fans everywhere. I'm too used to going to games and seeing like one or two Bruins jerseys wandering around and trying not to get hit or something like that. So yeah, I I think next next year or uh, next next in 2021, I'm going to bring my Eagles jersey, my Flyers jersey, nice. walk around just in case, just in case. <laughs> You know, I, had my, I had my Eagles jersey in my hand, and I'm like, "Well, we won one. What? How much trash can I talk if we go to the park, right? Like, what am I gonna say? Like, okay, well, you won like eight. All right, whatever. <laughs> That's funny. That's very funny. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it circles around to that tribalism, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. what we see in the fiction and, and kind of oh, stuff yeah. like that. You, you know, you just kind of like sort of plant a flag, you know, whether there's a, you know, a, a real expectation of, you know, inclusion or like, you know, my guys, and, you know, my team and whatever, but you just kind of like sort of get wrapped up in that, that stuff. So. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I always used to joke because I'm from Winnipeg in Canada uh, and they just got the jets back a few years ago uh, mm-hmm. and after too many years away. So when I moved down here, I, I kind of threatened. I'm I'm kind of anti-tribalist in a lot of ways. So I threatened that I'd take half of a Jets jersey and half of uh, <laughs> a Lightning jersey, clumsily Frankenstein them together, and stitch like, you know, uh, 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 fair play on it and uh, and all that <laughs> down the sleeves and on the back and so on, uh, and wear that to local games. But that kind of that idea went over like a lead balloon with people here in Tampa and probably with my friends back home. Too, to be perfectly honest. So, yeah. 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 Well, no, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to, so you're from Canada. So, you know, in our, I'm going to have to go back and edit this now. Most people in, you know, in a creative capacity, you know, mm-hmm. as we're seeing now, like in this, in this modern, you know, last handful of years are going to Canada, right? Because you can't, there's no value, no intrinsic value placed on, creative endeavor it seems like right like culturally socially you know writers you know um uh, i don't know it's not video game because they just beat those people into the ground but you know rpg industry all that kind of stuff you know mm-hmm. people move into canada because um you know it's more accepting or you know at least a little easier to get by you know as far as like social medicine and things like that sure. but you came here like what <laughs> what kind of prompted sort of this reverse like oh let me go to the states. Oh that it that that's a very simple story. I moved to the U.S. for love. Hmm. Uh, my, my wife is from Florida, and uh, we we've known each other for a very long time. Uh, and we got engaged, gosh, uh, ten years ago, give or take. We've been married seven years now. Uh, Twenty twelve, I moved down here. So about three years before that, we got engaged, and I was a starving graduate student. Um, I just finished my master's degree. Uh, in cyberpunk, science fiction, and posthumanist philosophy. Uh, and it started in on 
because I'm an idiot, a PhD on, on weird fiction and 20th century American modernism. Uh, and I had no money. I had, I had no visible means of support. And she had a very good job down here. So we were quite mercenary about it. Um, quite honestly, I think she would have preferred to move up to Canada. And I probably would have preferred that as well in the long run. But uh, she, she had a good job and I had no money, so she couldn't move up there. <laughs> so I came to Florida instead. And to be perfectly blunt, I've always preferred the heat to the cold. So Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I mean, once you have 36 you know, winters at minus 50. Oh, I, all right. Well, fair. <laughs> that's enough. I don't, I don't want any more of that. So I moved down here. We, uh, I came down here on a, a fiance visa. We got married within 90 days. And seven years later, I'm still here. So I don't know, though. I'm, I'm, I don't know if things are better for the arts in Canada. I mean, may, culturally, maybe. But I feel kind of uncomfortable saying so because I've only been a part of American culture for the past seven years. And one thing I have learned is that we don't understand American culture in Canada, by and large. Like... We think we do because we're so close, right? right, right, <laughs> right, right. Next door. But it's a very different culture. And it's something I don't think that you can truly start coming to terms with until you live here um, or at least spend a whole lot of time down here. And uh, and I'm using really broad strokes because, as we all know, there's dozens of American cultures depending on what sure, region sure. or country you're in. Um, but I, I, I would feel safe to say that the arts are a little bit more respected maybe in Canada, but I don't think they're any better paid, quite frankly, you know, uh, unless, you know, you're, you're a Margaret Atwood or someone like that, then yeah, yeah. You know, I, I was shocked to hear at Necronomicon Paul Tremblay talking about his day job. I was like, man, if, if that dude has to have a day job, what hope is there for the rest of us? Uh, but, you know, it makes sense. That's the climate of the times. And from what I've seen in Canada, it's largely the same. So it's a shame. It's a shame. It really is. But the great days of patronage are behind us. And the, the great days of the, the horror boom of the 1970s are behind us. So, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're like within a niche of a niche. Yeah. yeah. With the weird fiction stuff. Yeah. That especially, you know, I, I, it's something, it's weird for me because I, I approach ideas of genre and stuff like that from an academics perspective, which where genre doesn't really matter, or at least ideally doesn't matter, right? Like it's it's a term of art, you know, genre exists in the intention of the author and the expectation of the audience. It's not an actual category that naturally exists out there in the world. Right. Um, and I say ideally because, you know, I still had you know, the, the Chaucer scholar in my English department looking down his nose at me for daring to work on comic books and science fiction. Um, and I joke, he was a wonderful professor. I, I, I think he's retired now, but he was a wonderful professor. I studied under him for a while. So ideally, we recognize genre is just a category. But in practice, like most other people, we assume that it means something when it really doesn't. So weird fiction being a niche of a niche is, is true to some extent. But at the same time, looked at from that academic perspective, I think it's it's not really true right like it's it's just more fiction in a way it's no different really than any other branch of fiction uh, sure. it just has different tropes and different earmarks to it so right uh, sorry i kind of went on, off on a digression there a no no that's, that's fine no it's, it's, it's interesting because because you know we'll, we'll hear that bandied about at the con oh where you know it's a niche of a niche of you know where, where you know it's one little part of you know so you know we have um uh, you know, more, um, 
like, you know, gay, lesbian, you know, inclusive of like weird, but then there's like a whole other thing in weird fiction that like ignores that. So like, it's it's just kind of like all, well, like you say, story is story. I guess it doesn't, fiction is fiction. And I mean, there's been, when it comes to weird fiction specifically, you know, there's been uh, persons of color working in weird fiction for decades. There's been LGBTQ people working in fiction, uh, weird fiction, pardon me, for, for decades upon decades. They they seem to be getting more attention these days, which I think is fine. You know, I think if good writing uh, crops up, it, does, it doesn't matter to me who, who wrote it, quite frankly. Um, they're getting more attention now, and that's always a good thing. You know, yeah. more voices yeah. makes things stronger, I think. Right. Well, and I think we saw a little bit of that um, at the ending uh, discussion at Necronomicon, mm-hmm. where um, that 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 sort of um, racism sort of popped up, um, and and the guy was sort of—I don't want to say we shouted down, but you know, Neil's in the panel was like, "Yeah, oh, you were there." Oh yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah. And um, it's like, wow, really? How are you here? And and you you know, kind of still like have that opinion, like I. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's it, it's weird, right? I mean, it, it's just weird to be kind of like put in that position because, like you said, a good story is a good story. And yeah, the 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 gender, the you know, the the sexual orientation, whatever, it doesn't matter. Like, how does that? Yeah, it like, doesn't affect the writing at all. Yeah, uh, or at least the quality of the writing, I should say. Um, right. I I thought now I'm I could be entirely wrong. I it seemed to me judging from his accent, that English was his second language. And he certainly sounded fluent in English, but I think he was trying to make a point and stating it badly more than anything else. I think that he, and perhaps he just misunderstood what had been said, but he, it sounded like he was trying to make the same, basically the same argument that I just made, right? That it, yeah. it doesn't matter who wrote it. If it's good fiction, it's good fiction. Um, and that's what the focus should be on, the fiction first and foremost, as opposed to the identity of the author. Uh, and I think it came out like he was saying, we shouldn't have any more people of these other identities. And that's unfortunate because the one is a kind of, the, the latter is kind of a ridiculous point, but the former I think is valid. You know, so I was I was actually quite happy with I thought Niels and everyone else on the con committee handled that with a pretty good grace. You know, they they made the cons position clear uh, right. that they wouldn't close off any vectors for good weird fiction, no matter who it came from. Uh, and, you know, made it clear to the guy you've been hurt. So were they firm about it? Yeah, of course. But that's that's fine. You know, right. I thought it was all right. I, I know they also are kind of, they're kind of over a barrel in some respects, right? Like they, they still get some aftershocks from things that have been said about the con in the past and some rumors that have gone around and so on that they have to, I'm sure, deal with every day of their lives, which isn't fair to them. So, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so I don't blame them for being really firm and saying, no, no, this is the position. Take it or leave it. Right. All right. And, and I, you know, I think we're in a place where, you know, because of the, you know, the history of, mm-hmm. of you know, Lovecraft specifically, I guess. Uh, but, you know, him being sort of the grandfather of this whole thing sure. of, of pushing, um, you know, to be more inclusive. Right. Because, like you say, people have been writing, you know, stories for decades now and, you know, maybe kind of under the radar or, you know, felt, um, you know, uh, invisible or underrepresented in the genre. So, yeah. I mean, it's definitely cool that they that they do that to, you know, to, to cast a wider net. Yeah, you know? 
I certainly think so. I think it's unfortunate. You know, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I've been part of Lovecraftian fandom and kind of weird fiction fandom for since I was 14 years old, right? Um, and I kind of came in, I've read the criticism for years and years and years. Obviously, I did a doctorate on this stuff. Um, I've read the criticism for years and years and years, and I knew all the major players in the field and all the, to some extent, a lot of the lesser writers of criticism. And I've read hundreds of volumes of mythos fiction and Lovecraftian fiction over the years, as I'm sure most of your listeners have. But when I came into the fandom proper, I was surprised at the level of infighting. And, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I'm not really a tribalist sort of person. And nothing has gotten me more disappointed since my entrance into the fandom than this, this fight between purported Lovecraftian haters and purported people that, that, you know, want to ignore the problem aspect, problematic aspects of Lovecraft's life and of the, the fandom. You know, I find it truly disappointing um, because there's been bad actors on both sides in the past few years. There's been angels on both sides in the past few years. And it's, it's such a fight over nothing, right? Like ultimately every single one of us can recognize the fact that say, you know, and I don't cheapen his memory by saying this, that Lovecraft was a racist. There's no way around that fact, right? No. Does it infect some of the work? Absolutely. It absolutely does. There's, there's absolutely no denying that. It would be intellectually dishonest to claim otherwise. Does that spoil the work in some fashion, right? Like I, I think, for example, it's possible to read the uh, uh, Shadow of Rinsmith as a, a parable of miscegenation. Um, I don't think it's particularly fruitful on a critical analytic level to do so, but it's certainly possible. Um, it doesn't cheapen the story. It's still a masterpiece of weird fiction, right? And it's still worth enjoying. So I, I find that it's it's almost a tempest in a teacup in a lot of respects, because all these camps break up when something like Lovecraft's racism comes to the fore. Uh, and it's not worthwhile. It's just, it's absolutely not worthwhile. I love Lovecraft. I, I greatly respect the man. And I honestly believe that he was, from everything in his life that I know, I believe he was a good person. He was also a terrible racist and deserves to be remembered as such. But yeah. nevertheless, I do think he was a good man uh, based on every remembrance we have of him. So the fights over these really simple, what should be simple and digestible points, drives me crazy, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah. I just right. wrote a piece for Dead Reckonings uh, I don't know if they're going to publish it or not, but I wrote a piece, uh, uh, a Necronomicon 2019 retrospective uh, on that uh, very subject because I was very happy to see how well-respected Lovecraft was by the con. And I'm hoping that we can finally bury the hatchet in some of these fights. Yeah, right. So. Well, and, it, and it's not just, um, you know, a weird fiction a conundrum, uh, but it, you know, it, oh, it, it sort of bleeds over into everything else. Like where do you draw the line between, you know, art and an artist and, and yeah. what becomes unacceptable at what point do we, you know, can we separate, you know, yeah. I mean, I listen to, to music and, and watch movies of, you know, actors and, and, and musicians that I don't necessarily agree with, but I enjoy sure. the art that they produce. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I, you know, I feel like you, you kind of have to divorce yourself from that a little bit. Or else, what are you going to do? Just sit in a room and stare at a white wall? Like, mm -hmm. it's not like <laughs> it's tough. I mean, it's it's such a personal line, right? Like, I know, I know, I have personal friends of mine that have completely disavowed Orson Scott Card, and I I personally consider Speaker for the Dead to be an almost perfect novel. I mean, every time I read that novel, it moves me to tears. It's it's a wonderful book, but 
my value system is not that of other people. So I perfectly understand if my friends want to draw a line under Card's name and never read his work again, you know? Um, separating the art from the artist is such, it's it's a term from critical theory that I think it's, gets misunderstood a lot in common parlance. And I get it. Like I get death of the author theory. I've read Roland Barthes original article on, on death of the author. Um, but it's, I, I, as I say, I think it gets mis misunderstood because even in strict separate the art from the artist, the, the, the artist is still going to be there like a ghost haunting their work, right? We never completely yeah. ignore the intentions of the creator or who the creator was as a person. We just are willing to say if the artist's interpretation of their work is, is not supported by the evidence drawn from that work, then we can discount their interpretation, right? So... I don't know. We we get into uncomfortable points where Lovecraft himself might not have seen uh, uh, racism in his work, or Card might not see some of the uh, the homophobic stuff in his his own personal po politics infecting his work, or even something more simple like Tolkien's resistance to to allegory, right? That the wonderful moment of the grad student that wrote him and finally convinced him that. Uh, uh, the the dead marshes were were allegory for World War One. No matter how much you might say otherwise, they really, really are. And he had to admit it. Um, you know, I think that. Gosh, now I've lost the plot of where I was going with that. By the into Tolkien, um, I think it's important that we do try to separate the art from the artist at least a little bit. Um, but that is always going to be a personal answer, and I don't think that any of us should be so vain. And, and comfortable in our own beliefs that we we decry others for where they've drawn that line. You know, I try and be very, very sensitive about this because obviously, I mean, studying English lit, I've read a whole lot of stuff that a lot of people would consider horrific, you know, right. absolutely offensive. Um, but not only do I have to read some of that stuff, but I enjoy reading some of that stuff um, and for a variety of reasons, intellectual and personal. So I'm, I'm not about to say, you know, you can't be you know, unwilling to experience some of these works of the Harlem Renaissance, for example, uh, in, in 1920s New York, just because I enjoy them, right? Uh, and equally, I don't want anybody to get mad at me for my resistance at drawing certain lines, so. Right. Well, and I guess you're, because of your background, I guess it makes it a little bit maybe easier to do that because of the, you know, more, um, you know, analytical nature, you know, based on your you know, in your studies to, to be able to take a piece and, you know, sort of read and break it down for what it is, as opposed to, you know, like a Twitter cop. I, read this <laughs> thing and I hate it. I hate you because you like it. <laughs> it. It's entirely possible. I've, I've had good friends of mine, many friends, including my wife actually uh, have said at one time or another that my academic training has probably ruined my ability to just enjoy media on a visceral level. Like I just can't stop and let something wash over me. Right. Although I still insist that I can, you know, I can always turn on the critical faculties later and think about it. But I don't know. I, 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 uh, how can I say this? Um, it gives me a different perspective, but that perspective is not necessarily any more valid than others. The the thing I like to think that I look for more than anything else is context. Right. Like, um, you know, I I've did a lot of work on the modernist moment in early 20th century America, for example. And that directly informed my readings of people like Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard and Lovecraft himself in ways that I think that uh, uh, 
more casual fans, shall we say, those that don't dedicate eight years of their lives to a project, uh, <laughs> might not have. You know, and whether that means that I'm reading it any better than them or not, I don't necessarily think is the case. But uh, it gives me a different perspective, and uh, I I have learned one thing in academia is that I value other perspectives. I want to hear other what other people have to say because it's always a chance that I've missed something. So, but, and, and it's interesting, right? Like you say, it's a different perspective. Your enjoyment level is different because you're, you know, not necessarily breaking down, but you're you're able to pick up on things. Like I watch a movie and I'm like, yeah, you know, it was good. You know, and there might be like themes of like, you know, World War One. I, I don't know. You know <laughs> I was watching a movie. I'm like, just tell me a story. I'm not trying to figure stuff out. I don't know who did it until they tell me. Mm-hmm. So it, it's interesting. I wish I had a little bit more of a, of a critical mindset, you know, in consuming media um, to, to kind of like break it down a little bit. And I don't think it ruins the enjoyment so much i mean i don't know because i can't do it but um you know i think it would give you a a a broader perspective i guess right because you can kind of like dig in a little bit and you know kind of pull those threads and kind of see where stuff leads it it probably does i don't i don't want to sound overly arrogant (laughs) quite (laughs) frankly i mean it probably does i know my my wife used to argue that she never picked up on subtext until we got together in in films or literature or television or whatever it just completely skated by her uh, and after talking with me for for years as husband and wife or want to do she she finally started learning how to recognize subtext in in media and i don't know if that's true i think she might be having me on on that one but <laughs> You know, it, it's just, it's part of who I am. I think it's, it's the way I've always read. It's the way I've always watched stuff, you know, and I'm constantly surprised. Like I watched, uh, uh, I went to see Joker last weekend. Oh, what'd you think? No spoilers. Uh, no spoilers. No spoilers at all. It's excellent. And I'm disappointed in it at the same time. Hmm, interesting. Uh, I, I highly recommend it. It's beautifully acted. It's masterfully directed. The score is great. Uh, the set design is great. The cinematography is astounding. Everything about it is wonderful. I was still really disappointed because it's an origin story, and that's seemingly all it is. I wanted the, a film that well made. I wanted it to say something more, mm. and it doesn't, at least not that I saw. But the reason why I bring it up is I then went and watched the Red Letter Media uh, review because those guys are great, and I love them to pieces. And within about five minutes of that review, they would pointed out, I think, six or seven things that I just completely missed. And absolutely. And I won't go through what they are because of spoilers, but I mean, in retrospect, they were so obvious and they were powerful thematic notes for the whole of the film and that they just completely escaped me. So I felt like a first year student all over again while watching that review. Well, I'm going to write that down. Red Letter Media. Maybe I'll throw a link in the show notes. Oh, they're, they're wonderful. They're out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and they've been around for years. They're the guys that did, if you've ever seen them, uh, Mr. Plinkett's uh, episode one, Star Wars episode one review. That's how mm-hmm. they really became popular. And they do a wonderful review show called Half in the Bag. So, okay. Yeah. Sorry to shout out another channel, but. No, no, no. It's, it's, we, you know, cross promoting all the other stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I, I, I was thinking about going to see it. And like I don't know, like I'm I'm not a superhero guy, and I know it's not really a superhero movie. No, not at all. Um, but I, not at but all. I, I love Joaquin Phoenix. He's such a great actor, mm-hmm. and I'm like I don't know, like it looks like it should be good, but I'm funny. I'm like ah, that's two hours of my life. I'm not gonna get back. You know, yeah. like I I hate to go and then be disappointed in a movie. I, but it I looks don't. so good. 
I don't regret it for a second, even though I'm, I'm a bit disappointed in the film, especially if what you're interested in is Joaquin Phoenix's performance. It's, it's superb. Hmm. It is, I, I think he's in, he's in literally every scene of the film and possibly every frame of the movie. And his work <laughs> in the role is just astounding. I mean, there's no better way you can spend a Sunday afternoon than going and being depressed by Joker for about two <laughs> hours and 20 minutes. It's, it's that good. So, and it is very depressing. I will say that now. But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Interesting. Cool. I have to go check it out. Uh, <laughs> well, so you said you, you got into Lovecraft, uh, you know, like around 14. So did you, you know, like hit the whole cycle? Did you do C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien and all those things at, at that uh, time or? Oh, when I was younger, I, I, yeah. I, I think my godparents were the ones that gave me uh, C.S. Uh, I know they gave me Tolkien first mm -hmm. when I was very young. Um, maybe 10 years old, if not a little bit younger. And I think my parents got me uh, the C.S. Lewis uh, Narnia series uh, prior to that. I think I might have inherited them from my sister, actually, when she grew them. But I was in, uh, I had moved to a new town in Ontario, to London, Ontario, around age 12 or so. And when I was 14, I think, 13 or 14, I joined a local society for fantastic uh, fantasy and science fiction. And a giant group of nerds that went to the basement of the library, public library, once a month and, and chatted. And there were, I, I made some very good friends there. Uh, I, there were like three of us that were my age, and the rest were, were you know, men like I am now. Uh, <laughs> and they recommended Lovecraft to me. I can't remember who specifically gave me the first recommendation. I wish I could. I think it might have been Neil uh, and possibly reinforced by my good friend Bennett. Um, but they said, you, you, you should check out Lovecraft. He seems right up your alley. So I happen to have access to the university library uh, in London, the University of Western Ontario, and they had a complete set of the old Arkham House uh, collections, nice. uh, the pre-Joshi the pre ones, unfortunately, so not as well edited as Joshi has done. Um, but I sat down and devoured them. I mean, I just, I read everything I could. They had a few volumes of, of nonfiction on Lovecraft there. They had... Uh, Daryl Schweitzer's wonderful book. Uh, I can't remember the original title of it, but it's now, I think, Discovering Cthulhu. Uh, I've got a copy of it somewhere back there. I read that maybe 10, 12 times. Like, it was so interesting to me that this area of fiction I'd never heard of before was there, had persisted for, by that point, almost uh, 70 years, because this would have been in the late 80s, I think, when I, I was there. Uh, and not only that, but had really interesting and dedicated people uh, uh, looking at it in a way that I'd never considered. I, I hadn't, you know, I knew at that point, I suspected I wanted to study English when I went to university, but I barely started high school, right? Yeah, so yeah. I had no idea what criticism was or what an analytic work actually was. And it was wonderful to just find this completely rich vein that as far as I knew, so few people actually knew about in the time period. And then I got into Call of Cthulhu and so on, the the, the RPG, and really dove headfirst into it. So I, I somehow, I'm to this day, I don't know how, but the dual loves in genre fiction that I've always had, one is cyberpunk science fiction, and one is uh, the Cthulhu mythos stuff. And I don't know why those two in particular, they seem so incredibly divergent philosophically and aesthetically, but those are the two big passions I have. Somewhere in the middle is Warhammer 40,000 fluff fiction. Uh, <laughs> that's taking kind of a, an uncomfortable position between two polarities, but yeah. I don't know why. Those are the two genres that have spoken to me the most throughout my life. So. Interesting. 
Huh. Do you ever play? I forget what it is. is it um, Mechathulu? Is that what it is? That that blend of the like oh, the Cthulhu. power or the Cthulhu tech? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I've never played. I've read the core book for it. Um, right with an orange right. reach. <laughs> uh, I got into that originally. This is the revised edition, but I had the old GURPS Cthulhu Punk nice. way back in the day. Uh, as I say, this is the revised version. And I thought that was such a neat idea. You know, uh, when that first came out, I think I had, uh, I think I got it the year it came out. I thought that was such a neat idea to try and mix the two together. Um, Cthulhu Tech and its ilk, I haven't read the whole series. I've, I've read some bad reviews of stuff that came out later in the line, but I can't speak to that because I haven't read it. Um, I like the idea, but I'm also not as much of an anime fan as that game <laughs> seems to require. Right. Uh, there's a heavy anime influence in that game. And it's neat stuff. It's neat anime influence, but it also some of the, the some of the background concepts aren't there in my kind of living memory. So it's kind of hard for me to interface with them uh, as opposed to something more clean like Cthulhu Punk. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's a ton of those now, too. I think there's been a couple of, um, in the past few years, I think there's been two or three RPGs that are like, one is uh, Space Opera meets the Cthulhu Mythos. Uh, there's another one like Cthulhu Tech that is more transhumanist science fiction meets... Uh, Eclipse Phase? Uh, yeah, Eclipse Phase is one of them. I don't know how the Lovecraftian influence is in there via the Titans and all that, but... I don't know if it's it's as strong as in this other one whose name is completely escaping me, but yeah, hmm. <laughs> I have a long-standing tradition of reading games I'll never be able to play. So. <laughs> I tried not to do that if at all possible, but <laughs> oh, I used to work in a game store, and at least thirty percent of my paycheck would go to books every single week. Yeah, so. well, you get the discount. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, ten percent off. When am I going to be able to get that again? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, see, I, I, did, I didn't come to that stuff until later. Lovecraft, mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis, uh, gaming. I didn't start until I was, until just after I started college. Oh, wow. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a late bloomer as far as that goes, but I've been on like three podcasts prior to starting my own. So like <laughs> once I started, I was all in. <laughs> nice, nice, very nice. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing you can do but dive in really at some point if you have an interest in in any of the subjects or or all of them uh, just hold your nose and jump in and see what you can find right you know yeah it's it's interesting to me because i never when i was young i never thought of these things as unusual right like these weren't i got bullied and i got made fun of for being a nerd i was a, a short kid originally with glasses when i was three years old right uh who had a funny first name so i got bullied and all of that but not really for what I was reading or anything like that. So, you know, I read comics when I was a kid. I read uh, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, as mentioned. Uh, my favorite comic book was Alpha Flight way back in the day uh, when John Byrne was, was writing it. Uh, and I played role-playing games quite young. I played board games quite young. And it never struck me as unusual, right? Like, I was, I was reading textbooks on Greek and Norse mythology at the same time, right? And it just seemed like more of the same thing. Uh, I, I think my parents might be to blame for this. They got me reading a guy named John Belairs, who wrote The House with a Clock in Its Walls. I, I have it. I, oh. I love those books. <laughs> yeah, they're great. 
they're great. They gave me those when I was maybe, gosh, six or seven. I started reading John Belair's, and I, I love John Belair's, right? I'd been reading Hardy Boys and stuff like that, but nothing was like what Belair's was putting out. Uh, and I think that might have tipped me over into un, unknowingly horror and science fiction and fantasy throughout the rest of my adult life, <laughs> right? that one powder keg moment. So I read that. I read all the mythology. Uh, when I was a little bit older, I read all the, the Piers Anthony's Ant series, uh, at least as many had, had come out at that point. I've God only knows how many are out now. Um, so it never was uh, odd stuff, right? It was never out of place for me. It was never, I, I, I always go back to what Harlan Ellison said that he got uh, before he passed away, obviously. He used to get uh, unreasonably angry whenever he, big surprise for Harlan Ellison, whenever <laughs> he saw his books in a bookstore in a science fiction or fantasy section, right? Because he didn't want them there. He wanted them with literature because he considered them just literature more of the same he didn't right. want a marketing label slapped on his books in other words and i, I that's always stuck in my head a little bit because it's it's like well it's it's just more stuff you know i'm reading right now i'm reading um jason ray carney's non-fiction book weird tales of modernity which he was kind enough to give me at necronomicon uh, i'm reading uh, a collection by daryl schweitzer waiting strange gods i'm reading ayn rand's uh, uh, atlas shrugged because I've never read it before. I have the temerity to call myself a 20th centuryist and an Americanist, and I've never read <laughs> Ayn Rand. Uh, you know, and for me, there's not a lot of divisions between these things. You know, they're they're just stuff. They're stuff to be enjoyed, stuff to be thought about, stuff to be criticized and analyzed, you know. So I don't know. It, it, it's weird to me that other people don't think that way, you know, that they yeah. niche off the hobbies. Uh, and and haven't been dipping their toe into it all of their lives. Uh, your case is not unusual to me. I know plenty of people that come into quote unquote nerd culture in their their late teens, early twenties, after having no experience of it as a child. But it's it's so unusual for me that it's it's kind of hard for me to grasp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, you know I did like you know card games and board games and stuff, you know, parcheesies and things like that. Yeah, but but never really kind of like, you know, flipped over to the rest of it. You know, just never, you and then know. you played diplomacy for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, cause we, you know, it's a different, different time. Right. I mean, we would get on our bike at eight in the morning and come home at, you know, six or seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night. Like you oh, just sure. didn't, we, we never were around to do like, we were always out doing stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and I, you know, I mean, even people my age, they played D and D when the first came out. But like, I don't know, I get you know, my experience growing up, I guess, was just different, and that we were always out running around doing something. Oh, if 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 I was out somewhere, I mean, I would go out riding my bike and stuff like that. But you know, we were we were the kids that were always trying to to mangle a couple of risk boards together to get <laughs> a longer game out of it, and writing our own rules for flying between continents and sea travel and so on. So. Right. You know, that, that was us. No, well, that's cool. I, the first time I ever played Axis and Allies, we were on a Boy Scout trip. It was our midwinter camp out. And this kid opens up the box and, like, dumps all his shit on the floor. And I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck are we supposed to do with that? Like, <laughs> what? Well, you're for three days, man. <laughs> you, you just described my wife's reaction every time I show her a fantasy flight game. She's like, what am I supposed to do with all this? Don't do that. Don't give me this. I yeah, don't like especially their Cthulhu stuff. Ugh. Oh yeah. Well, I, I've kind of, to some extent, I've given up on their 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 
board games. I do like the third edition of Arkham Horror quite a bit. I like that they've streamlined it. But these days I'm sticking mostly to the the living card game, Arkham Horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, I play that with a couple of friends down here, and that's great fun. But the the I've had some bad PTSD from the original Arkham Horror board game. So, well, it takes you three hours to read the rules, try to explain it. It takes you an hour and a half to set it up. It takes oh, you six hours to play it. It's <laughs> a nightmare. I, I've I, maybe it's a self destructive impulse in me, but I've always wanted to buy like on eBay uh, a lot of every expansion for it and rent a warehouse somewhere, like go down to the rec center or something, and try and get through a game with every expansion thrown in. I don't know if it's feasible. I don't know if it's doable. I know my friends would kill me. They would never ever play a game with me ever again if I talked them into it. But why not? <laughs> hey, you don't know unless you try. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Well, so what? What's your favorite style of game? Are you like a heavy Euro guy, or like where, where does where does your happy place lie? I, I'm okay with Euro games. Uh, I wouldn't say they're my favorite. Um, I, I like games with some crunch and some strategy, but not an overabundance of it. Right, mm-hmm. like um, Twilight Imperium. I think I've played once, and I don't know if I ever want to play it again. Like it's an excellent game. But there's just too much. There's too much, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like how I am with video games. You know, I really like uh, the occasional walking simulator, as they're kind of derisively called. And I really like the the rare, super detailed 4X game. But I prefer something more in the middle between those two. You know, I don't. I like a game that makes me think, and I like a game that expects me to use strategy. But I don't want another doctorate to require to play the damn game i'm much the same way with rpgs and and board games you know i love champions but i suck at math so i don't play a lot of champions you know um i think i i that i ran into that with gurps at one point or other because i if i remember right it was a transhuman space source book and i absolutely loved the setting for transhuman space i thought it was brilliant but in one of the rules, if I remember right, they had a calculation that you had to apply uh, dependent on the size of a planetoid that you happen to be standing on uh, to determine if a projectile weapon's ammunition would break, uh, uh, would reach escape velocity. after it left <laughs> And I was like, man, if this game is expecting me to do calculus, I can't. I can't get on board with that. I'm sorry. Yeah. So... You know, yeah, I, I enjoy some rules light RPGs, but I like stuff with some crunch. You know, I think right now of the stuff in the in the field, I still think Call of Cthulhu and D and D Five E are probably my two favorites. Um, I, I was a Kickstarter backer for the Delta Green uh, mm-hmm. Call of Cthulhu uh, variants, and I, I love every product they've done. But it has just about the right amount of crunch to satisfy me, um, and same with Five E. Yeah. Did you did you play fourth? Did you like fourth edition D anD D or no? I played fourth once. I had a uh, two friends of mine uh, back in Winnipeg that were just crazy for it. They absolutely adored it, and I could see some of the appeal, uh, but it, it didn't grab me in the same way that at the time three point five had. Uh, and even then, I'd I'd kind of gotten sick with three point five due to rules bloat over the years. Yeah, yeah. Um, it just got overwhelming to play 3.5 uh but 4e never really tripped my trigger i've, I've always debated going back and, and rereading 
the core rules, or at least reading it more in depth than I did when I the one time I played it. Um, but it just, for whatever reason, it didn't seem to appeal to me. I don't hate it in the way that a lot of seemingly really rabid fans do, but <laughs> uh, uh, of other editions, rather, seem to hate it. But it it never really appealed to me. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it, um, yeah. and and I guess. I guess it, it, it kind of meshed my personality is very like resource management. So you're kind of planning and, and you know, whatever. Absolutely. Uh, but, but even with that, I mean, you could still role play, you know, with that constraint, it just didn't, it didn't push you that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, we played that. I don't know for, I till fifth came out, I guess. I mean, we played that for a long time. Oh, wow. Wow. Maybe it was the group of people I tried playing it with because they were very like they knew the rules backwards and forwards and God help you if you didn't sort of thing. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> they, they would press every advantage they possibly could. So maybe it was their style of playing that didn't appeal to me more than the game itself. But I never went back and investigated. And I probably should, in all fairness, give it another shot. But the opportunity has not presented itself. Yeah, I, I remember I offered to buy a complete set of four ebooks off of somebody that I, I saw on a forum at one point who, when 5e was announced, he threw a party uh, and the centerpiece of the party was him going, going to be him burning all of his four ebooks. Oh, and he had a complete run. So he had a couple of those giant Tupperware cases. And I messaged him and said, look, like name a reasonable price, dude. I'm, I'm more than happy to take them off your hands. But he never responded to me, sadly. So hmm. presumably well, they have since gone up in smoke. I don't know. Well, that, that's a little bit overkill. <laughs> I kind of thought so. That was, uh, again, I'm not a really tribal sort of guy. So that seemed like a bit of an overreaction. Yeah. Me. Yeah. Well, especially if you didn't like it, why did you buy everything? Like, yeah. That was the other confusing point. Why did he have a complete run? <laughs> did he go to eBay and buy a run specifically for this purpose? Or has he been collecting it in, as a shameful secret all of these years that he now can come clean about? God only knows. That's funny. I, I played Pathfinder for a little bit, and, mm-hmm. and I'm in a 5e podcast aside from this one. Sure. Uh, and I, Pathfinder, I didn't love because it was a little too crunchy at you know CMD and CMB and all these things. You're, yeah. If you're surprised, you're flat footed. Your AC is a different. I, I don't need any of that shit. Like that, that's forget <laughs> it. Um, fifth is pretty streamlined. It does give you. It, it promotes the the RP aspect a little bit more, going through your background stuff and kind of giving you traits and different things. Um, and I, I think that's more helpful for new players more than because, like you know, we play and I'm like, ah, I don't want any of this. I'm going to grab this from this thing over here and I'm going to put this it in this thing from here. Sanitars. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm going to like make up something. I'll let you, you know, you tell me if that's okay. Like. Yeah. Because that's like that's what we jive on, right? I mean, making a character like who doesn't have a hundred characters sitting in a folder? Oh, so sure. that's a cool idea. <laughs> yeah, it's it's nice. I think Five E. I played Pathfinder a little bit, but I don't think I played the most recent edition, so I can't speak to that. But yeah, uh, I, I think Five E strikes a really nice balance between opportunities for role play. And I was actually just talking about this with uh, a. a member of the role-playing game uh, group that I'm in now. And hello, Order of Bedlam. I know I will be there in probably about a half hour. I missed <laughs> my D&D game by, by being on the podcast. Oh, tonight. I remember you saying that. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that 5e strikes that nice balance between allowing for, for good role-play, but also 
being very quick to allow dungeon crawling murder hoboism if that's if that's the vibe of your party for that night right yeah uh, and i think that's difficult for a lot of the various dnd editions to do two you know AD&D and second ed lends itself to it pretty well that balance uh, three tips that right over in the RPG level, or pardon me, the role-playing level, as opposed to the murder hoboism. 5e gets it perfect, right? You can do either very nicely. Right. Um, and I, as a fan of both styles of play, boy, you know, I, I'm glad to have a system where that's easily allowable. Right, right. Now, I, I, I brought this up on the show before, so people probably get tired of hearing it, but um, the, the thing that so D D is not my favorite, right? So if I choose something to play, it's probably the easiest to play because right? everybody knows what it is. It's just part of the zeitgeist now. Um, but because it's more of a, at its core, more of a power fantasy thing, mm-hmm. like it just doesn't grab me that way. Like, um, like we we play a, you like sci fi, so mm-hmm. we play a day trippers game. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's a OSR narrativist clone of like near future where you're, you know, part of this multiverse and you kind of jump in your ship and, you know, go do this mission and sort of come back. Mm-hmm. We played our whole first season in some deep, like psychodrama shit. And in the, you know, my character's an alcoholic and like all this stuff. And it's such a gr- you know, that to me is infinitely more enjoyable than like, Oh, what do I have to roll to hit this orc? You know, like yeah. it just doesn't scratch the same itch for me i, I don't sure. i don't know what it says about me but you know i'll play dnd like i said i'm on a whole nother podcast and that's what we're playing um and it has it play it has its place but that like that basic conceit kind of just throws me a little bit you know what i mean because like that's yeah you know i get it i mean sometimes you want to play as conan other times you want to play as elric right the anti-conan um i i think that I don't know if I'd describe D&D as quite a power fantasy. I see where you're coming from. Um, I, I I think that element can be there. I don't think it necessarily has to be there. But like you, it's not what I always want, right? Like uh, yeah. I, sometimes I want to be a doomed loser and play unknown armies or cult or something like that, <laughs> right? Sometimes I want to be able to die on my feet, so I'll play D&D instead. Um it depends on the temperament of the person, I think, and it depends upon the needs of the situation. I don't think anyone... I've seen a lot of people make claims towards exclusivity and their, their gaming tastes. And I think that if we really looked at it, we'd discover how untrue that is. Like we might have tendencies of what we enjoy, but that's going to vary over time. Right. Like, you know, even the most grognardy of murder hobos can't do that all the time. There's just no way. There's no way in 50 years of gaming, you can't tell me that they've always wanted to go through yet another Tomb of Annihilation run, right? <laughs> like, there's got to be more in their gaming experience. I think that applies to all of us. So, yeah, it's an interesting, it's a weird balance. You know, I think I think it's a weird thing. Um, I've been interested in seeing some of, to bring back what we were talking about, inclusivity before, I've been interested in seeing some of that grow up in tabletop, RPG and board game circles. Because um, what strikes me is that, you know, at, at least insofar as my lived experience and anecdotes are not data, gaming's always been inclusive, right? Like it, it's always been an open space. Yes, there have always been jerks as well. There's yeah. no denying that. Uh, and I don't mean to invalidate anybody's experience of said jerks, but this has always been a set of hobbies that has been really open and welcoming, I think for the vast majority of people. I know certainly, you know, the gaming 
groups I belonged to when I was a teenager would never have dreamed of turning anybody away, right? Like there were three of us. We desperately wanted a five-man yeah. party. Um, you know, so I, I think it's it's interesting to see that that idea, that narrative come up in modern gaming and see people try and work with that in different respects. You know, some I agree with, some I don't, but trying to express it in different ways. Um, I think it's it's an interesting turn. So it, it's it's an interesting time to be a gamer. We'll see. Hopefully the, the resurgence of RPGs is not just due to Stranger Things and won't disappear <laughs> in four years. You know. Well, I, they've got a whole lot of new converts. So I mean, Yeah, that's very true. I think we're probably in the you know a renaissance, as it were, with uh, the 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 breadth of games that you can play because it's not just D oh, no. and D and Warhammer anymore. There's so many, you know, indie games, narrative oh, yeah. narrative games, you know, so many different things that you one page RPGs, you know, you're like that's this true. dude. And you're in a room with another guy and like these who, you know, these are your two characters like go, you know? Oh yeah. And even something like you mentioned, I think you mentioned the OSR earlier. Like I find that fascinating, you know, people trying to look back to what was foundational for RPGs and seeing what they can do with that toolkit, right? Seeing how they can play with that uh, to great effect in a lot of cases, you know, really interesting, interesting stuff, stuff I might never ever play, but, and it's great to know that it's out there. Yeah. yeah. I, it's what I really like about the new edition of, of Call of Cthulhu is, is the luck. And then, you know, having the option to play Pulp. You know, that's oh, yeah. But, you know, being able to, you know, influence a gamer like Cypher System where you can spend XP to be like, you know, you ask, is there, you know, is there a fireplace? I don't know. Is there, here's an XP. There's a fireplace, right? Like, yeah. you know, just to add different elements and, and like do – you know, have a little bit more narrative control over what's happening, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're cooperatively, cooperatively storytelling. So, you know, maybe there's a cool thing. Like, I enjoy that in the role-playing and just, like, painting a scene, just, like, throwing mm -hmm. stuff out and, and you know, just kind of, like, getting that mental map. Like, I, I enjoy those those aspects of it, you know, oh, yeah. so much. Just because it just, you know, really gets, you know, gets everybody in there, you know? It's, it's really cool. If, if you've never checked it out, I highly recommend Trail of Cthulhu. Um, I, I, it uses the gumshoe gum system, which mm -hmm. I really, really enjoy. I like that. I like the fact that there is no problem in any given narrative in Trail of Cthulhu that's unresolvable. Right. But every scene, there's at least one character in that scene that can solve the problem of that or the puzzle of that scene. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's it's a really innovative design. That they took with that. Um, I was. I can't remember if Ken Height was involved with that. I think he was. I think it's. I think Robin Laws came up Robin with the system, Laws. but Ken's definitely involved. Yeah, um, it, it, it's a really nicely designed system, uh, just for exactly that reason, right? It allows for the creation of really complicated, engaged narratives uh, while not requiring kind of a, a gimmicky mechanic in any way, right? Like you don't really have to fudge the numbers if you're a GM for yeah, Trail of Cthulhu. Yeah. It's baked into the system. Right. Here's the clue. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I like systems like that. You know, I, I like systems like that. Uh, and there's been so much interest in game design, which I don't know anything about. I have no background in games theory. But uh, it, it's interesting as an outsider to that field to see how people are, are twisting it around and doing it, you know? Uh, it's yeah. kind of like I got excited when the, the game Godlike came out years ago, and they had such an interesting dice rolling 
uh, uh, for attacks, right? All all attack and damage rolls was one roll of the dice. And they had a length, I think it was, they called it a length and breadth mechanic for the dice, which I, I can't remember specifically how it worked now, but at the time I thought it was just great, you know, that they came up with something so original and then pinned the whole of their system to it. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I hadn't seen that. Oh, that came out, gosh, early 2000s, I, I think. So. Yeah, I remember the name, I, mm. but yeah, I'd, I'd never, never read any of the books. Um, I played some trail. We actually have a fear itself campaign, which uses. Oh, guns. that's right. I completely yeah, forgot. For like four years now. <laughs> it's been a long time. <laughs> wow! 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 Yeah, it's. I've never. I've never read any of the fear itself stuff. But if it's anything like trail, I'm sure I'll like it. So. Yeah, it's it's the same engine. It's um. So we started playing in first edition before they had the campaign option. Hmm. So we just kind of like, not so much tweak the system. Because I think the original conceit was kind of like, you know, hard, you know, slasher flick, mm-hmm. you know, it's a one shot sort of thing. You pick your stereotype, you know, I'm the, you know, you're the jock or you're the nerd or you're whatever. Then you're you're essentially playing out a movie script, okay, more or less, and then you know it's kind of over. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah, we we kind of like dialed back, kind of dialed back the lethality to then you know be able to take the characters forward through this whole campaign. It's, it's been a lot of fun. It's it's, uh, it's it's a good game. That sounds like a lot of fun. It reminds me of like I think it was Teenagers from Outer Space, that style of game from the the mid to late eighties, where uh, uh, characters were essentially that taking roles in B movies, you know, from the fifties. Uh, I like that idea. I like that conceit a lot. So yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, there's there's a couple of games like that. I think Slasher Flick, maybe. Yes, 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 yes. I've seen that around. Uh, I haven't read it, but I've seen it around. I, th- I think there's at least one more, and I can't think of the name. Fandible, uh, great podcast. Um, if, if you enjoy actual plays, role playing, sure. Um, they played another one. I can't think of the name, but it's it's that same sort of thing. Um, yeah, I'll get that down. <laughs> Fandible, you said. Fandible, yeah. Fandible, I'll have to check them out. Yeah, they've been around for i don't know a long time they were one of the first podcasts that i that i picked up and their their role playing is phenomenal it's, it's a great great show oh that's cool and then oh, they play cool. a variety of systems they did warhammer for a little bit um they they have a long shot for numenera oh nice for a while um yeah they're they're, they're kind of they do a little bit like i guess i should say we do what they did uh <laughs> in that they'll play you know various campaigns together mm-hmm. they, they run through more systems than we do for sure um but yeah it, it's a really good show nice I, I used to love uh uh shows like that way like in the early 2000s i used to listen to recordings of i i think they were called yogsathoth.com i don't know if they're still around it's not the yogs cast or at least yeah. i don't think it is but they're a group of british uh call of cthulhu fans and they would record their Friday night Call of Cthulhu sessions. And they are always a hoot because these guys were super into everything. They knew yeah. the game backwards and forwards and they loved the fiction. They loved the films and so on. And again, this was early 2000s or so. Uh, and they just had great campaigns. So I love stumbling across things like that. Yeah, def- definitely worth checking out. Nice. I will. I'll make a point of it. Cool. And uh, I, I guess you are you have people waiting for you, I guess, to get your, your game in tonight. So I don't uh, hold you up anymore. <laughs> Sure. I, I'm always happy to chat more. I should probably get going, but yeah, I'm man. always happy to talk. Absolutely. Well, we'll have to have you come back on again. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, do you mind if I give just a quick plug for myself? 
No, yeah, they'll do good. Well, if you found me at all interest, interesting, dear listeners, feel free to pick up Mountains of Madness Revealed, edited by Daryl Schweitzer, now available from PSPublishing.com. It has my uh, second professionally published short story, and I think my fourth or fifth, uh, no, actually seventh or eighth uh, uh, published short story, period, professionally and otherwise. So pick that up. If you are interested in what I have to say academically, check out my uh, uh, articles in this, the next issue of Dead Reckonings. There will be two or three articles by me in there. Uh, and keep an eye out for me. I'm going to be around for a while. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And I'll show, I'll throw uh, links in the show notes then so people can uh, link right out to that. will make it easier for them to find it. <laughs> Please do. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Well, it was a pleasure having you on. It was good to to meet you at Necronomicon. I'm, I'm glad you were able to come on and hang out. This was a, a stranger conversation than I envisioned we were going to have, but this was, uh, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was very pleasurable. It was very enjoyable for me. It was great to meet you at the con, and I couldn't be happier that you've invited me to be on the show. So thank you very much for that. Absolutely. All right, I want to thank everybody for checking this out. Don't forget, we do have our sponsor, Birds of a Feather Coffee. We have a nice medium roast. It's the legendary brew. If you use the code LEGENDS10, you're going to get 10% off your order. Shipping is always free. And you can find that in the convoluted link in the show notes. Or if you go to tinyurl.com forward slash legendary brew, it'll take you right there. Thank everybody for checking it out. And we'll catch you next time. Take care. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.